Hello, hello everyone. This is InventRight co-founder Andrew Krause here. We're going to do a whole hour of question and answer. So it takes a while for everybody to file in. Of course, if you ask your question now, you're more likely to get it answered. So if you ask it much later in the Q&A, quite often I can't get to all of them. So, um, you know, if you've got something important, go ahead and type it in now. Um, let's see. So I am going to go ahead and post this on social media that I just went live. So let me take care of that really quick. There we go. That one posted and this one posted. We're all good there. Okay. So, um, just to kind of, I do this at the top of a lot of hours. First disclaimer, anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. So that little disclaimer. And the other thing that I'll say is that the benefits of licensing are amazing. Uh, myself and our other co-founder, Stephen Key, um, we don't feel, we're not just here to sell you on our coaching program. We believe and we have been advocates for the licensing business model for 22 years because we believe in it. It's very empowering for inventors not to have to get a $10,000 patent and a $5,000 prototype and start a business, quit your day job, mortgage your house and home. You don't need to do any of that when you're licensing because when you license to a big company and you, you're not selling your idea, you're not selling your patent, but you're renting or leasing your product to a large company. And I say rent or lease, is what, that's what licensing is because if they don't perform, if they don't meet certain criteria in the contract, you're going to get it back. So that's why I like to say rent or lease. But when you're renting or leasing your product to a company, it's their money and it's their workforce and it's their distribution. You don't need to raise money. When you start a business, don't need to hire employees. And you don't need to try to start a business where retailers um, or distributors, whoever be buying the product, look at you and go, you're nobody. You're a one skew, one product company. Because when you license to that really large company, you are that really large company. So you can think big. And that's how most inventors want to think. You want to think really, really big, like anything is possible. And when you team up with a large company, it's just about anything is possible because it's normal for them to do 20,000 units a year, 50,000, half a million. It depends on what the product is. And that's normal for them. Now, for you to try to do that from scratch, very, very difficult. And if you're a creative person, you know, running a business may not be your core competency. Um, maybe you run a business and you're pretty good at it, but you're like, I know what's involved. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that kind of risk and spend all my waking hours running that business. Now, licensing isn't all perfect. You know, if, if you want to make, if you insist you want to make the product pink and they want to make it purple, well, they're going to make it purple and you need to be okay with that. Now, most inventors are okay with that, or they might want to change the name slightly or change the product slightly. So you don't have 100% control. And if you do, then you, some people might say, well, then you got to venture. It's like, yeah, but do you have the skill set to do that? So um, it's not all perfect. You lose a little bit of control, but um, all, well, all our students that sign up and get help with us from us, um, they're okay with losing that little bit of control. They're like, well, that's a great trade-off. I'm okay with that. Um, if somebody's not though, um, then you need to go ahead and venture your product, but also ask yourself, am I wired up to do that? And most people are not. Um, they get going. And um, I talked to a guy the other day, he spent a million dollars, a million dollars, and he wasn't, he was pretty stressed out. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and jump in, start um, doing some of these questions. My two cents, who is a regular, uh, a fry pan used to be iron, then came Teflon. Now is a granite pan. Yeah, I think my wife bought one of those. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, so if you come up with a stronger, less resistant material for a door hinge, or you meant more resistant, more rust resistant material. We were joking about that in the chat. Um, is that something new and patentable? Um, yes, it is something new and patentable. But um, And I think that don't mistake a new material with the invention. Like sometimes people are like, well, I want to license my product and it has Velcro in it. So I don't know if I can do that. I'm going to need permission from Velcro. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, the company would license your product, manufacture the product, and they would buy the Velcro and stick it on. So just because 
you have a product that's patented that goes on that product, if it's a commodity and it can be purchased, then the company that makes it can purchase it and and you utilize that material or mechanism for that particular product, which would be the case for Velcro. Okay. So um, what was your question originally? Um, so could you do a hinge? It's just an example. You guys shouldn't be disclosing anything. I think he's just giving that as an example, of course. So don't make any public disclosure of your invention here. But a hinge that was more rust resistant, would that be new and would it be patentable? It really, it really depends. Um, you know, sometimes taking a material that is in a frying pan, for example, and moving it over to a door hinge, well, if it can be made cost effectively, the most important thing that you want to ask yourself is, would it be marketable? So I don't care if it's patentable. If nobody wants to buy it, who cares if it's patentable? All sorts of things are patentable, but does it make sense? Can it be made and can it be made at a reasonable price? So at that core, forget about the patent for a second. If you had this outdoor hinge, let's say it was, I'm assuming it's an outdoor hinge, you don't really have that issue so much indoor, and it was more rust resistant, is that a benefit from a, from a marketing standpoint? Yes. Without a doubt, these outdoor hinges, maybe there's a particular situation, industrial or otherwise, where they get really rusty and that's a problem. And now you've got this hinge that's more rust resistant. So is that licensable just because it's marketable? Absolutely. Now, is it patentable? I don't know. And could you still license it without a patent? A lot of the times, yes, you could. People are shocked by that, but yes, you can. Um, but if you're taking this material that hasn't been used on a hinge, and used somewhere else, there might be problems with doing that. And that's a good thing because if there's a problem with it and then you solve that problem, not only do you have a product that's already marketable, but you have something that might be patentable as well. So maybe taking, uh, this is just the random example you gave, taking technology that you put into a frying pan and applying it to a hinge, well, maybe hinges aren't made the same as frying pans. You know, and so you're like, oh, I know a new way of making this, manufacturing it, so it'd be applicable for hinges. And now you have something patentable, possibly, you know. So without getting into the real weeds and going, what did other people protect? But taking materials and adding it to areas where they haven't been added, is that marketable? Yes. Is it licensable? Yes. Is it patentable? Maybe. But don't assume just because it's not patentable that you couldn't license it. And don't assume that taking something that was made over here and then making it a different way and doing it slightly different with the method of manufacturing or the way it's being applied, that it might be a new patentable um, method because hinges are made different, for example. So um, so without getting into each individual product, you know, getting into the weeds, you can't say for sure. But, um, but hopefully that was helpful, my two cents. Um, so in the end, you said your question is, so the point is, is there always new materials and chemicals coming out to use for product ideas? Yes, of course there is. And I think when you see new materials and chemicals coming out and seeing how you can apply them to new products, but in the end, you always want to go for the benefit of the product. What's the benefit of the product to the end user? And, and if you can, if the new material is going to achieve that benefit, well, then great. So for instance, in this case, making a hinge rust-free, for example. Um, okay, Dana says, you can hear me. So Dana's, uh, Dana's a former InventRight student. She actually licensed this product, the, the shower caddy right here, really cool product. It's a long um, mesh kind of hanger. You hang in the shower and you can put your, your brush in there. You can put shampoo in there, different things. Pretty cool product and she licensed that and now she works for us and she does um sales for us she's an advisor so if any of you are interested in the program you're either talking to sylvia or dana and um i'm very flattered that she's very knowledgeable about licensing at this point really great at reaching out so i'm always flattered when she attends these so thank you dana um uh so if you don't have if you have a handle and you want me to type your name instead just put your name at the beginning but this person does have a name here, just a handle, and it's Gaga Blag Blag. Okay, that's your handle. That's that's an interesting one. Um, let's say if the product is a big machine that doesn't sell much, like a very powerful computer. Okay, 
How does the licensing business model work? Let's say if you have one big invention. Okay, so there's obviously a massive difference between a 99 cent product that's gonna sell 5 million a year and a half a million dollar machine that sells three a year, right? But licensing is licensing. And so the three factors you're looking at there is the price of the product. Everybody thinks it's the royalty rate. It's the royalty rate. It's it's not. That's one of the factors, but it's the price of the product. And then the royalty that you're getting on that, what's the royalty rate? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 8%? Is it 3%? Whatever it is. So the price of the product and the royalty rate. And then the, the big one is the volume being sold. So if you have a 99 cent product and you sell three units a year, you're not going to be very happy with that royalty rate on that. But if it's a $1.5 million machine that you license and they sell three a year, well, then that's, what is that? 4.5 million and you're getting a royalty on that. Okay. That might be okay. So again, price of the product, royalty rate, and the volume being sold. So can you license a product that is very, very low volume, but very, very high price? Yes. Can you sell a product that's very, very low price and very, very high volume? Yes. Can you sell all those, those extremes um, in between? Yes. Um, so, uh, so you have to do it. You, so you basically, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce your, your handle again, but, um, how much are they going to sell this big machine? What's the price of the machine? And then multiply your royalty rate and go, would I be happy with that? It's a hundred thousand dollar machine and I get a 10% royalty. And so that's $10,000, let's say. And anybody rich but hey if you license that and then you license others the big beautiful thing about licensing is you're tapping into the existing workforce money and distribution so for them to something really expensive um that's what they do a business nobody knows you nobody wants to buy from you you know you're, you're licensing it to a company that already has all that so um that is possible you can sell a very expensive machine and only sell a few. Run the numbers, figure out if it's worth it. And you only really know the numbers when you talk to them and you get an idea of what they can do, but you can kind of figure out if it's worth it. Um, uh, uh, Derek said, Andrew, in regards to a company that insists on having a patent before the launch of a product, have you ever had a company tell you um, no on forwarding forwarding royalties to pay for that patent. Oh, okay. Um, yes. And you think that's weird. So this company that you're talking about in this either fictitious or real scenario is insisting that there's a patent. Now, any company that insists you have an issued patent is archaic. So to sit around waiting one to four years for the patent issue is just stupid. So if they're like, oh, no, it has to at least be pending. Can't just be a provisional. We need to upgraded to a full utility. Um, I have seen that before. And they're like, no, no, we want to actually file it before we put it out in the world, not just provisional patent. But not very often, but I've seen them uh, wanting to do that. Um, and then the company is telling you, no, they don't want to give you an advance on royalties. So one way that our students do this all the time, they file a provisional patent for 75 bucks, they get interest from a company. And then a real easy way, not easy, but a good percentage of the time you can get them to agree to it. And you, so let's say you find a very competent independent practitioner, independent patent attorneys and agents are more affordable than firms. And it's like $8,000, right? To file a patent. Let's say that's what they quote you. And then you go, you talk to the company and you don't want to say, I want you to pay for my patent. You want to say, I have a very competent independent practitioner and it's $8,000 to file the patent. Because sometimes these corporations, like they're used to paying 20 and they're like, oh, I don't know. But then when you tell them the actual dollar amount, they're more likely to say yes. So, and then on top of that, it's an advance on royalties. So they give you the $8,000. You're going to give it to your attorney. You and your attorney will file it, but you don't want the company filing it. You want to file it. And that's an advance on royalties. So what does that mean? That means the first, now they've given you that money. You're not going to have to give it back. I haven't really seen an agreement where you have to give it back. And I really like it because it shows some commitment. They're like, well, patents are really important to us. It's like, well, great. Put your money where your mouth is. Give me some upfront money. And I'm not asking for it from me. 
I'm asking for it to protect me and you as the licensee. So they give you that money, $8,000, let's say, or it could be 20 or whatever, but $8,000. You give that money to your attorney to file the patent. And then the first 8,000 in royalties that comes in, they keep because they've already given you that 8,000 and it's your patent, not theirs. They're just renting it. And so that's a good way to get companies to pay for your patent. So isn't that great? that you can spend 75 bucks on a provisional, get a fish on the hook, close them, get them to pay for your patent, as opposed to going out and spending that money and not even know if anybody's interested. That is the invent right way. Now we have plenty of students that have filed patents before. And if you have, and they have that value immediately, then sometimes you can just ask for an advance on royalties and because you've already filed a patent. Um, but in this fictitious or real scenario, um, the company, have you ever had a company tell you no to giving you an advance on royalties? Yes, we've seen that before. And oddly enough, um, sometimes the company will say no to that. And then the, we'll go, it's, it's funny how our negotiation coach will help our students and they'll just change it up. And then they'll say yes. So, but I, I mean, I remember seeing a scenario in which the company didn't want to give the, it was eight grand, I believe, around there in that case, um, to the inventor to pay to file the patent advance on royalties. So, you know, they're going to have to pay it back when the royalties come out. Um, but then the, the inventor came back to the company, said, okay, just a $4,000 advance. And they agreed it on it. And now they took that money and applied it to the patent. And then the inventor paid the other $4,000. So there's all sorts of things that you can do there. Um, but sometimes you just ask for an advance instead of ask for pay for the patent. Usually that's the way you're going to utilize. It's going to make it more likely that they give it to you. But maybe you just negotiate a lower rate and you get off paying for the patent. And for in their mind, you're supposed to pay for the patent, but they'll give you a smaller amount of money and it's going to help you pay for the patent. Now, think about how great that is. Most inventors spend a ton of money on a prototype, ton of money on a patent. They don't know if anybody's interested. And in this fictitious scenario, you've got a fish in the hook. You spend 75 bucks on the provisional. They're going to give you an advance. You're paying for part of the patent or all of the patent, and you're reducing your risk dramatically. So, you know, I, I mean, if you've got this big company and they're signing a licensing agreement and they're willing to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch your product, and you need to get together 4000 the other $4,000 to file the patent, is that a good risk? Hell yeah, it is. Is that a much smarter, better risk than most inventors take where they just come up with an idea, they go out and file a patent? Hell yes, it is. I think it's a pretty low risk situation. Now they could fail to launch it or something like that in which you're out that money. Now you have a patent, um, but it's a, it's a stark contrast, the invent right way and the way that most people take. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know a lot about that product. Derek was saying, in, uh, oh, sorry, it was somebody else, Matt here. Uh, can you tell me about the purple and blue monster above your head? First of all, we got a lot more students of licensed products than you see on the shelf here. I've got some that were too big and just tons of them. Um, and actually, I haven't really looked at this that much. Uh, yeah, I don't even know which one of our students licensed this. But it looks like it's a, a Play-Doh, and then you add these pieces to it. And um, I don't know anything about this one. I don't even know the name of the inventor. I'm embarrassed to say that. But we got so many students licensing stuff. Sometimes I don't really keep track of it. So I don't know who licensed that. Um, but it is one of our students. It's up here. Um, let's see. Um, this is from Aircraft Customs. Hey, Andrew, thank you for sharing your experience. Can you license one product to more than one company simultaneously? So I get this question almost every Q&A, and I'll keep it short. As long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, you could break it out geographically by a different version of the product, by different distribution channels. This company sells here and here. But if they're stepping on each other's toes and they're both selling in Walmart, are they both going to sell the exact same product, one online, one in stores, and one's going to hurt the other? No, that makes no sense. They want an exclusive. But you'd be surprised how often where it can make sense where you can break this out. Like, let's say they do a super low price version. That's what they do. And you're like, hey, 
I want to keep this high-end Mercedes-Benz version. And they're like, we don't care about that. That's not going to hurt us. That's going to sell for 50 bucks and ours sells for five, right? Or the company you license to just sells in the U.S. and Canada and you want to keep rights for another country. There's all sorts of ways where it makes sense. Or you got a different version of the product and it's like different enough, different industry. You kind of change it up a little bit. And they're like, yeah, we're okay with that. So, but don't think you're going to license to five companies that all sell in Walmart the same thing. They're all going to be fighting against each other. There's no benefit to them. Okay. Occasionally they'll go, oh, we want a non-exclusive. Very rare. Um, but, you know, the whole point of licensing is licensing to a large enough company that has the money, the workforce, and the distribution. So you're just tapping into that. Right. And so don't be greedy. If it's this big ass company that's in, you know, Home Depot and, you know, and sometimes it's it's the biggest one or it's the second or third below that or it's a really good size medium one. Be happy with that. But don't think you're going to license it to five companies that are all going to directly compete with each other. That makes no sense. So it's a great, great question. Um, we get that all the time. But like I said, there are always exceptions. You'd be surprised so often that's the case. Um, Mr. Reaction said, I use Smart IP. That's our solution to file a provisional patent. So you can... It's, our students get unlimited use of it. Um, the public can buy it on our website if you click on protection on the bar at the top um, for 99 bucks. And then the patent office fee is just 75 bucks. We don't pay that, of course. Um, so I used Smart IP and it was fantastic. Now I need to reach out to companies. Any advice? And how long should I expect to wait for a response? So first of all, Smart IP didn't help you at all with a good marketing presentation, studying the marketplace, making your list of companies or how to reach out. And people overvalue provisional patent applications. They're so worried about protection, protection, protection. Nobody's going to want to see your provisional patent. I'm glad that you found our solution was great and you felt good about filing that provisional. That's great. That's fantastic. But if your sell sheet sucks, if you're approaching the wrong companies, if you're not approaching them the right way, if you have an anemic list of companies is two or three instead of 20 or 30, you know, that provisional patent is going to do you no good. Okay. So it's not like you did everything and now you're set to go because you're not. Maybe you are. I don't know what else you've done. But so how long should I expect to wait for a response? So you're going to, for a lot of companies, have to reach out four, five, six times before they get back to you. Others you'll get a hold of them the first time, others two or three. So, you know, and I've found that even our students that have a personal coach they talk to every week and can email anytime, they always try to get away with less outreach. And every time the coach is like, no, like, oh, the company didn't get back to me. And the coach is like, well, how many times do you reach out? Once? It's like, what? You, you, you just got started, dude. Like, what are you complaining about? They, well, first of all, the coach would never say that. The coach would say, okay, what did you send? Okay, let's take a look at it. Okay, well, let's try to reach out. Let's space it out. Let's reach out to these other ones. Let's use a different technique. Let's get on the phone. Let's send an email. Let's do these different things. And so that outreach is very critical. But if you're reaching out to 30 companies and you've got a crappy sell sheet, well, then you're just wasting your time. you know, Or you didn't really look at all the other products in the space and your marketing is not appropriate and not really having a clear point of difference because the marketing managers, they know the products in that space, but you had blinders on and you did a poor job of marketing because you didn't want to look at the other products in that space. Oh, that sucks and that sucks and that sucks. And oh, mine's great. And then I, 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 I can tell you this, 95, I'm not exaggerating, 95% of the new InventRight students, not 100, but 95, their sell sheet or their video, whatever marketing materials they've done, a lot of people haven't done anything the ones that have, are not good enough. Now, I would say 10% like okay, but 90% just not good enough. So if you see non-event right students with good enough marketing, most of the time, the, the graphics are wrong, the marketing is wrong, they didn't really study the marketplace, they didn't address things, it's not really popping. They need to understand your product in six seconds. If it's a video, you can't lose them in the first 10 and you don't want to go longer than a minute. But if it's a sell sheet, they need to get it in six seconds. It's really kind of a stretch to even give you 10 seconds. Most people have a really hard time with that. And that's something that a student, an uh, event rights student and a coach would go back and forth on quite a bit before it's okay. And 
you know, we're, we would be doing our students a serious disservice if we're like, oh, okay, that's good enough. You really, you want to reach out to 30 companies with a terrible sell sheet or just an okay sell sheet? Because you need to really understand that marketing managers and companies, they got, they're so busy. They're, you know, have you ever looked at your inbox? You know, do you give every email that comes in a thorough look? No, you don't. And neither do they. So you need to really kind of get them and really intrigue them from that second. And it's not for them. It's for their customer. You want them to look at it. Oh, if our customers that buy dog toys saw this, they would they would want it or do whatever the product is. OK, so um, so that's so so that hopefully that was helpful. Um, that was for Mr. Reaction. I think it was Mr. Um all right. Uh, Phase says, if I wanted to pay a software developer to create an app for me, do I have to have a patent on it before I create the app? Okay. For the most of you, I wouldn't get into apps. So here's the problem with apps. Not all of you. Everybody and their grandmother, especially a lot of grandmothers, use apps. My grandmas, they're on iPads. They can barely use a computer, but they can be on an iPad and they can do their games and do some basic stuff, right? So everybody, their grandmother has an idea for an app, but the software guys are very cynical towards inventors as opposed to physical product consumer companies. Um, now you can license an app, but they look at your idea, the software geeks, and they go, well, dude, yeah, that's going to take six guys in a room a year to program. Okay. And they're, they're like, thanks for the idea, but eh, you know, and so you have very clueless inventors that are like telling you, we should do this. And they're like, well, how do we do that? And you're like, I don't know. So now if you're a software developer of experience in the software industry, I don't think there's much of a difference for you doing a software product or a dog toy or a medical device or, a, or a gardening product. There's not much of a difference. Because you have that background, so you can intelligently say, hey, you use this database and this and this, and you have some perspective on is this something that could be programmed in two weeks or two years, or it's going to take hundreds of thousands of dollars or $20,000. But if you're not a software developer, you have no freaking idea. And to go out and pay a software developer, it's incredibly painful and super involved to write most software. It's very costly. And then you're like, oh, I'll go to India. Well, I mean, I had this gentleman that um, Steve and myself knew. He used to be an executive at Clorox. And he, I can use this public so I can talk about this. And he had an app that you would put on your phone and you'd have it running. And so when you would drive, um, it would track your speed. And so if you got a ticket and you weren't speeding, you could use this data to prove that you were not speeding. I don't know if it actually stood up in court. I didn't follow up with him. But he spent two and a half years with guys in India trying to get this thing made. He was going to sell it himself. Two and a half years. Then he paid the big bucks and went with some programmers here in the States. And I think it took him another 10 months. So he said it was the most painful. This is an executive. He's, a, he's retired, but he's a former executive at Clorox who's used to managing people. He says the most painful thing I ever did in my life, Andrew. And so don't think you can just pay a programmer to crank something out. Now, I'm not saying you need to get something fully programmed to license an app, but you need to have more. A lot of our students are doing a virtual prototype, sell sheet, benefit. Oh, it's pretty clear. And if they're interested, they can license it. And, you know, but this is a physical product. But with, a, with an app, you know, I find that most inventors don't have the background to be able to intelligently talk about it. And the software developers don't take you very seriously. So it can be very problematic. Now, like I said, if you're a software developer and you can talk intelligently um, about it, then I don't think there's much of a difference between you and, and, um, and doing a physical product. So I think that's perfectly fine in that case. And so with software, um, you know, you're the, who's the retailer? It's not Home Depot. It's not Walmart. It's the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store right? And then the people you license to are companies that are making and selling apps to those ones. So I would only work with developers where you can see they've been successful with their existing apps and they have done very well, have lots of reviews. You can tell by the number of reviews and stuff whether an app is successful and you're going to tap into them. So, But I don't recommend apps for most inventors. 
Um, I would stick with physical products, but if you're a software developer of a background in software, I think it's fine, but I just really don't recommend it for most people. Um, okay. Brandon said, hi, Andrew. I have a few products of different utility that solve the same problem. Is it better to send multiple sell sheets to the same company at the same time or send one at a time? Yeah, this is a hard, this is one that you, you have to decide which version is best and just do that one. Sometimes you can have on your sell sheet the, the main version and you have in a smaller picture optional version. At most, I would ever do that. You cannot send five sell sheets with five different versions of this product that solve the same problem. You've got to pick. And whenever I've helped inventors pick, it's usually pretty obvious to me which one they're going to pick. The the I've never seen like, oh, these are all viable. At best, I'm like, okay, yeah, you can make this other one an option, but I'm always like, this one's the best. It's obvious, okay? So, and my guess is that's true for you, Brandon. So, um, I would I would not send them that. And if they say no to one particular version, can you send them the others? Yeah, you can um, if you want to. But if they're not interested in the benefit, if it solves the problem, which is in a different way, probably not going to be interested in those either. So you can email them back if they say no to the one particular one. Say, I've got three other versions of this. Can I send you three sell sheets for a quick five-second look? Would that be okay? Yeah, I think so. But no, don't do that up front. you got to put your best foot forward. Are you going like, to likely license one of those other three? Very unlikely. You really got it. It's possible. But... Um, Okay, so Margie said, we get this question once in a while. Hi, Andrew, does InventRight have a program to offer with just the negotiation stage of licensing it for not students? Thanks for all the great advice. So yes, we do. And so I hear that, I'll talk to people about the program or Sylvia or Dana will all the time. And they're like, you know, I, I'm just gonna use you guys since you do have something when I get interest. But guess what? I never hear back from those people because people didn't do the sell sheet right. They didn't do their research right. They didn't reach out right. They don't get deals on the table without our help. It's pretty rare. Um, so yes, you can do it on your own and you could jump in and you could sign up for a negotiation package. We could just help you adjust the negotiations, but you're really missing out because it's pretty rare that inventors, if there's this path you need to take to get interest from a company. And even if people read our books and watched all our YouTube videos and all this stuff, it doesn't seem to be enough. It's the little details, the devil's in the details, and the failure is in the details. Little thing here or there. Um, I had some samples last week of what they were because I talked to two different people that um, had told me just that. And it actually told me, like, I was making those mistakes. I came aboard. Now I'm not making those mistakes. Now I have interest. So you're welcome to do that, Margie. You're welcome to reach out when you get interest. We'll help you with that negotiation. But you're less likely to get there without us. But go for it. I encourage everybody that is watching us to um, and reading our books to go for it on their own. But if after a period of time it's not working, you're not getting deals, you're probably do some, doing something wrong if you're not getting deals on the table. Okay. Uh, uh, Karen said, hi, Andrew. Thanks for the show. $70 for each PPA only applies to our first four applications. Is that true? The next should we pay $150? So um, from my understanding, I'm not completely up to date on that. I don't really care that much either. But um, if you're, I do know that if you're under a certain income level and if you go to the patent office site, there's a form you can fill out. You can just download. It's like a worksheet. And if you earn less than this much annual household income, you qualify as a micro entity and you can just pay the 75 bucks. I guarantee you, I know for a fact that there's a ton of people that are earning more than that amount and they're still just paying the $75. Have I ever, ever talked to an inventor where that got them in trouble? No. Could it? Maybe. Like with later fully upgrading it, um, everybody I know is just paying seventy five, um, and I do think I saw something about it limiting the number, but I don't. I see tons of people, so I don't really know to be honest. It was kind of funny that I don't know that, but I do know that from micro entity under a certain amount, it's seventy five. 
fearing over a certain amount, you're supposed to pay 150. Have I talked to a ton of now? It's not going to be relevant or matter unless you license the product and then later need to full upgrade and need that one year that the patent office gives you from you filed the provisional and later you filed the utility. And but here's the deal. I've never seen that year ever be an issue where it was a legal issue, where any inventor, you need to use the year they gave the PPA. They're just using the date of the the patent that they ended up filing. The only time you're ever going to need to quote your provisional patent date if somebody challenges that in that one year, if that year is not an issue. I have never in 22 years of doing this, provisional patents have been around that long, um, seen that ever be an issue. So, But I do think you're right in that you may be you definitely are supposed to be paying the 150 instead of 75 for the provisional if you're over a certain dollar amount. Do I know that tons of people are still paying the 75? Yes. Have I ever said ever once see that be an issue? No. Technically, are they limiting you to the number of PPAs you file if you're a micro entity? You know, I'm not sure. I believe you might be right, and I believe you right you might. The number is four. So, um, but anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. I, I just think about it. We've had students in over 65 countries. It's never come up. So if that gives you an idea of what I'm trying to say, then there you go. Um, Ali Pro is their handle. I am currently reaching out to companies with my patent pending sell sheet. How should I word my email and do I send my sell sheet straight away or ask? Always, always ask. It is completely unprofessional to send marking materials unsolicited. You always ask whether that's on LinkedIn or on the phone or via email or on social media or anywhere. You always, always ask before you send it. Um, Ali also says, do you still review sell sheets so I could get feedback from professionals? We never did that. Um, I think we did it on a few YouTube shows, but um, for people that were okay with going public. Um, but we do that for our students. We do that for every student that can be, so it's not, it's more than you think. You can't just review a sell sheet. I mean, I could look at a sell sheet and say, do I understand the benefit of this product in six seconds? Okay. But you need to guide the student because a good percentage of the time they didn't properly study all the other products in the space. The marketing is all wrong. So now you're talking about maybe a couple hours of help. So, you know, oh, just, just take a look at my sell sheet. Tell me if it's any good. It's like, well, no, this sucks, but then I can't spend two hours, like, unless you're a student, going over it and making sure you did your research. Then you come back and they're like, oh, that's what I thought. Or, oh, I wasn't aware of those other parts. Well, let's change up the marketing based on that, you know? And so um, we don't review sell sheets from non-students because it's very involved, but we do that fully for our students. My God, yes because it's so important. It really is. Um, the Gaga Blag Blag handle said, Austin, thanks for your answers. You're welcome. You got to work on your handle there, man. You probably never thought anybody would ever be reading that out live, though. So no worries. Um, let's see. Okay. Misha said, hi, Andrew and fellow product developers and inventors. Thank you for being so pro professional, Misha. Question, have you ever considered a wacky invention sell sheet contest? Inventors would send sell sheets for fictitious wacky inventions, just an idea. I think that's a lot of fun. There are a few, I don't know their name names. I don't remember their names, that is. Um, a few guys, one in particular that does wacky inventions, like he invents stuff that's completely useless and then shows you his invention. I remember one, I watched one of his videos and it was a cup holder when you cross your legs and you're sitting on a bench and it's, it attaches to your foot and you put your cup there. And it was just, it's just funny stuff. Um, I think that because we're so serious about legitimately helping inventors, we, I would be a little worried that um, people would think we're making fun of inventors because there are a lot of people that make fun of inventors and we're the antithesis of that. We're really about supporting inventors. But if it was just made very clear and you have this contest where inventors would submit wacky inventions, there's kind of a couple of other guys in that space. And so I do think it's a fun idea. I just don't want anybody to be, um, I don't want to make fun of inventors. Um, in any way, shape, or form. But if it's just like, 
an inventor that's truly an inventor saying, I'm going to submit this wacky invention as a wacky invention to make everybody laugh. I kind of like it. I think it would be fun, but we have to be careful about how we do it. You know? Um, yeah. Um, uh, and Ackerman said, can you show us the locks on the left uh, shoulder? I think that I've seen them in stores before. So yeah, this is one of our students and um, this is Todd Bache and it's called a word lock. And this was a long time ago. Um, and uh, I just love how they compete since sold the company, but I love how it uses letters instead of numbers. Some of you might be like, oh, I've seen that before. Well, when he came out with this, nobody had it. And then you got another one right here with another version of it. Um, pretty cool. But yeah, he made a lot of money on that. So that was Todd Beish. And that was, that was a pretty cool invention. So um, that was back in the day before anybody did it. Um, he had some tough times with Master Lock. Um, I won't get into details there. But okay. Okay. Uh, Isaiah, how do you license an invention that requires regulation and compliance? For example, if I invent a new electric generator, does it have to be UL certified? Well, I don't think that's how do you think and if okay, that's um it can be a problem, but really if you're approaching companies that sell those types of products and it needs to get UL certified, that's like that's what they do. And so kind of a litmus test sometimes, I've had some students like do medical devices and the company's like, oh, you know, we're going to need to get this, this certification, that certification. So I don't think we're going to pass. And the inventor's like, oh, they said they need to get these certifications. Like they weren't interested enough because that's what they do. Every product they do, they need to get that because it's medical or because it's this or that for electronics. So them telling you is, is that's not a legitimate excuse. If they were interested enough, they would go, go through the pain of doing that. With medical products, it's tougher than with electronic products. And there's a lot of these electronic products these days. I follow this one guy, uh, Will Prowse, because um, I, I like to learn about solar. I installed solar in my RV and I'm learning about electricity and stuff. And um, he's reviewing like uh, all-in-one solar generator systems. And um, and he talks about difference between certified and listed, UL listed and certified. Anyway, so it, you can sell a lot of electronics but without having it, with having some certifications and not others. That's actually very common these days. So that's what they do. So I wouldn't really be too concerned about it. Now, is it more work for them to get that done on this electronic product than just like a gardening trowel and they don't need any certification? Yeah. So is that more for them? Do, are, when they're looking at a product, if they want to license it, are there more roadblocks in between getting that license? Yeah, because it's a more complicated product. You get these circuit boards made. They might need to get some sort of UL certification. And you got this gardening trowel and they're like, okay, we're good. So does that make it harder to license? Yes. But does that mean you shouldn't work on electronic product? No. Um, so hopefully that was helpful. Uh, Fave Dup said, where are you guys located? Can I visit your company? How can you guys help me launch my first product? So, um, you know, some of these invention promotion scam companies, like they have offices all around. So we've been a virtual company our entire time. Now, for a while, we had kind of an office where Stephen lived in Turlock, well, he lived in Modesto and in Turlock, California, he had an office. It was literally a 10 by 10 office with his assistant because that's all he needed. And once in a blue moon, maybe twice or three times a year, if somebody lived in that area of Northern California, they would drop in. But we've never really had an office. And we're, we've had students in over 65 countries, like why the hell would we? It's so old school to do that. So um, we're a Nevada-based LLC. I'm in Henderson, Nevada, next to Las Vegas. I moved from here from Silicon Valley about 13 years ago. I've been around 22 years. Steve and our other co-founder is in um, Lake Tahoe, Nevada, on the Nevada side. So we're both in um, Nevada where there's no state tax. So we save like 13% on state tax. So that's nice. We got the hell out of California. Um, I mean, that's where I grew up. But so that's nice. But like Heather is one of our customer service managers. She's in Salt Lake City. And then we got um, another employee in California. And then we got another employee in Ohio. And we have our all 
the vast majority, about 90% of our employees are former invent rights students. So they're all over the country. And for a while, we had an employee that would go back and forth to Latin America, too. She lived here, Texas, sometimes, and she was in Peru, and she would coach people from there just the same. So we don't have a physical store, um, but our office, if you will. Um, but, you know, look at look at our testimonials on inventright.com. We've been around 22 years. You're not around 22 years. There's a few wacky people that if you look for complaints, there's this one woman um, she was a student, no complaints from her at all. And then uh, there's, there's the only really bad review that I've seen out there. Then six months after she was a student, she basically blackmailed me and said, look, if you don't, if you don't give me all my money back because I can't pay my mortgage, that um, I'm going to write a bad review. I'm like, go for it. And she did. Um, and we wrote, wrote a rebuttal. But you, know, you can find that one, but pretty much nothing else besides that one. Um, and that's 22 years, guys. So, um, but yeah, you know, if you want to talk to us when you do um, a sales call or a coaching call, we love doing video. It's not quite in person, but it's closer than on the phone. So, um, but faved up, I guess that's your handle. Watch our YouTube videos, maybe read one of our books if you want to, and realize we're going to guide, coach, and mentor you. We're not an invention scam promotion company that says, oh, we'll do it all for you. And then you're out $10,000 a year later and go, what happened? I've never met an inventor that's licensed a product that way in 22 years. But we talked to somebody who's been taken for 10 or 12 grand just about every day or every other day at the very least. So don't, don't get all excited about your invention. Think you're going to find somebody to do all the work for you. Now, when you license to a company, it's going to be their money workforce and distribution. So they're going to take on the product as theirs, but you got to do the work to close that deal. And to, if you want to find an invention promotion company to do that, you're going to be in a world of hurt. So don't go down that direction, but you can go on our website, go to InventRight, click on contact us, book a call. You'll talk with Danny, Dana or Sylvia, and we'll just tell you how we help people. And so you're welcome to do any of you guys can do that. Um, uh, I'll, the artist, I guess, is your handle. You and Stephen are awesome. Thank you. I'm filing a PPA tomorrow. I'd love to send you my sell sheet. Where would I send it? So like I said, we don't review sell sheets um, uh, for free because I can just say it's kind of a slippery slope. I can go, oh, your sell sheet's not so good. Um, or I could tell you, oh, this looks good. But if you didn't, if we don't get into the weeds with your product and only the products in the space, which in more in-depth call, then I can't tell you it's good, but you didn't study the marketplace and you didn't accommodate for the other products in the space unless I'm getting in the weeds with that. So there's no like quick sell sheet review. Um, you could say something on the surface, like this looks good on the surface, like the benefits are clear. But if I don't know the other products in that space, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't know you had no real point of difference, you know. So that's why we do that for our students, but not for non-students. So um, Mike said, uh, hi, Andrew, your timely Monday podcast is always appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I always like their handle. Don't touch me is their handle. And he writes, hey, <laughs> first. And then he writes, how many companies do you reach out to at the same time? All of them. That's a great question. Hey, don't touch me. That's their handle. Um, that's just funny. Uh, so if you have 30 companies, you're reaching out to 30 at the same time. You're not doing one at a time. It'll take you freaking forever that way. And when you get interest from one, you keep reaching out to more. Because be, might, you might go back and forth with them like a month, month and a half. And then you're not reaching out. And then they're like, ah, oh, we said we're not interested. And you're like, oh, crap. OK, start reaching out to more. Uh, three weeks goes by, you get another one. Oh, OK, I'll stop reaching out. These are my guys now. And two months goes by because you're going back and forth with them. Oh, we decide we're not interested. You can drag this thing out forever. So it's a shotgun blast. You're getting out to everybody at the same time. And almost no inventors do that. So I think I give a lot of great tips here, guys, based on 22 years of us doing this at InventRight. And that is a very important tip. You got to do that. Um, Derek wrote, give Andrew a like. So yeah, before we, we've still got 10 minutes. So I'm going to give you 10 minutes more of my time. Um, but if you could like down below, um, that would be great. And also if you're not subscribed, click the subscribe button and click the notification button. It doesn't 
take anything away. You're not going to get spammed or anything, but it helps us as a channel. I'd love to, I don't even know where we're at. We're, I don't know if we're above 50,000 subscribers at this point, but I'd love to get to 80,000 subscribers sometime soon. And every time for me spending a whole hour answering your guys' questions, if you want to say thank you to me for that, please subscribe, like, and um, click on the button below. If you're already subscribed, don't click on it again because I'll unsubscribe you. If you did that, click subscribe again. But that would be the way of really you guys saying thank you to me. Um, Mike said, even at best, the whole inventing licensing thing is is work. So just so everyone knows. Yeah, it is, guys. And so it's, it sounds like great and perfect. Like, oh, God, I don't need to raise money. This company is going to sell the product for me. They're going to use their employees and they're going to use their existing distribution. That all sounds great. And it is. But does that mean you're going to call two companies and license your product right away on your first product? No, you got to reach out to a ton of companies, get a lot of no's. It's work still. And if you're not ready to do that work, just go back to your day job right now. If you're ready to do the work or you're like, well, I, I just thought somebody would do it for me. Nobody will do that for you. The only people who will claim to do is the invention scam companies. And you're just going to be taken for a bunch of money that way. You need to reach out to the companies you can license to directly. Okay. And those are the companies selling in stores. And so Mike is right. It's just work. You know, um, it's a fraction of the work of starting a business. You don't need to, God, when you start a business, try to sell a product, you're going to be spending like at least 50, 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. Otherwise you're going to fail. It's so brutal right now. And for you guys to go and manufacture something in China right now, even large companies are having a hard time. So it would just be pretty insane um, to do that right now. But licensing, very smart, um, but still work. Mike's absolutely right. Uh, Antonio said, hey, Andrew, do you still offer a 20-minute consultation service for InventRight? I don't know when we ever did. We do sales calls. So if you have questions you can book on our website go to invent right and click on contact us and book an appointment if you have some questions generally about how the process uh, works how invent right would be helping you yes but it's not like a free um uh you know just coaching session if you will but you could ask some questions if you don't understand the process oh we'd help you like this here and that there absolutely um but it's not a free coaching session um i guess that we've done We've done it a couple times, to be fair. We've done that a couple times, but we're, I don't have any intention on doing that anytime soon again. Um, uh, don't touch me is their handle. And if I'm making a small lot but significant improvement on an existing product, what if the politically correct way of reaching out to companies and inquiring a possible version two of their product? So first of all, I'm a little confused. You're saying you're going to make a small sample of the product yourself, making a small but significant. Oh, okay. Sorry, I met risk credit. Small but significant improvement on an existing product. What is a credit way of reaching out to a company inquiring about a version two of their product? Okay. So inventors do this quite often. You're you're basically wasting your time if and, and this is not the right way to invent. And not talking about you. Don't touch me. But. Um, Love seeing your handle. Seeing one product that one company sells and wanting to change it and only to present to that one company is a waste of your freaking time. Now, if you said, oh, well, they're making this product and it has these features and I think I can improve it, but I could license it to 20, 30 other companies or 10 other companies, fine. Now, some people don't understand that, well, yeah, I, 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 this company has this patented portion of it. The whole product isn't patented. So I can't do that portion, but I could still do my improvement. And I could still license it to 10 or 20 other companies. Go for it. But if you're only going to present to one company, that's not a good use of your time, guys. You can do it, but that's amateur hour, you know. But most of the time, you can license to a bunch of other companies. They're, oh, but they're the only ones selling. I'm like, no, but there's all these other people out there that might not be selling that product, but they might want to get into it and they can sell now, if they've got a lockdown patent and you can't even do remotely anything like that, which is rarely the case, well, okay, then it's only that one company. It's like, is that worth it? But what he's saying is what's the politically correct way of reaching out to them and not to tell them that their product sucks. You know, um, you know it's it's basically a new and improved version of their product. Are they going to be into that? Maybe, maybe not. But 
if you bother to make that marketing piece and they're the only one you're going to show it to, you do a, good, do a good job with that marketing piece. It's not a good use of your time, just straight up. I don't care how excited you are about it. And I'm just saying a general statement. I've seen inventors do it. You can't be successful doing it, but it's one chance of success rather than 20 or 30. You got to play the numbers when you're licensing. Okay. Um, uh, Rowan said, if I do not patent an idea after a PPA and successfully successful licensing, how can we stop others from copying my invention? Um, well, when you file a PPA, you need to reach out to companies. So are you just going to sit around filing patents, preventing others from doing it? If you want to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and then threaten to sue people, you can file patents, not try to license it and sit on them. So the provisional gives you an entire year to reach out to all these companies. If nobody is interested, nobody's interested, why do you need to continue to prevent other people from doing it, right? Now, sometimes you'll reach back out again, like a year later, two years later. You go, I know that thing had legs, and you file another provisional. If you didn't make public disclosure, you just privately show it for a license, then do it again a year or two later. Sometimes it'll pop. Some of the same guys that said no will now say yes. Um, but don't be like, Move on to another idea. If you approach 20 companies, you follow the PPA and crickets, move on. But if you still, oh, I think this thing has still has legs and the PPA ran out and you didn't publicly disclose it and you just privately showed it for license, we'll file a PPA again for another 75 bucks, reach out to companies a year or two years later again and go for it. That is worth doing if you really believe that I could add legs um, or even six months or eight months later. But don't like be obsessed about continuing to protect it you can continually file a PPA, but why? Why are you doing that? Nobody was interested. So the focus should be reaching out, not continually protecting your ideas that nobody showed interest in. Um, Misha said, thanks, Andrew. Makes perfect sense. Appreciate all of your knowledge and contributions to the inventing community. Thank you. Uh, Ackerman said, thanks for showing the locks. You're welcome. Yeah, really cool. Um, uh, let's see. Hmm. Yeah, me, Mike was just commenting. It's, I like the humor side, you know, and sometimes we get really serious as inventors. So I think Misha's suggestion on sending in ridiculous sell sheets for ridiculous products is kind of a fun one, but I just want to be careful that we're not poking fun at inventors. Some people might take it the wrong way. But if we made it clear that only submit your ridiculous, maybe that's something we do one day. But like I said, there's some guys with channels that just do that. And they do their own products, ridiculous stuff. And they do YouTube show and people watch it for entertainment. Um, but we might do that um, at some point. It was a fun suggestion, Misha. Um, Hakeem said, thank you. I really appreciate your time to teach us. You're welcome. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, Mr. Andrew, thank you for answering my questions and for being real. I appreciate you. I miss Steven today with you guys so much. Yes. Yeah, so Steven and I, we do a Q and a on Thursdays on LinkedIn. So Steven and I have a lot of fun with that, um, as well. Um, Waleed said, um, Hey Andrew, can you invent and revise my sell sheet and marketing material? For a fee without being a student. One thing we're playing around with is um, is is uh, smaller packages that aren't six months of coaching and six months of site, and they're the tailored packages on our site. So if you go to our sales page, services page, and you click on tailored, I think their one is just for refining your marketing materials and sell sheet. So we'll lead you might consider that. Um, I think it includes two coaching calls. It's something we're kind of playing around with. We've never done before. So you might consider that. And if you do upgrade to the full program, we'd apply that full amount towards um, the full uh, coaching program. So that might be something to consider. Uh, German said, would, would one be able to patent a kid's game idea that uses a collection of multiple already made items? I don't know what that means. Hopefully that makes sense. Thank you for your valuable time. They use a collection of multiple already made items. I'm curious as if it's things around the house or things that you're going to include in the game. 
Yeah, you're talking about patenting. So I wouldn't worry about the patents with the game. If you've got some unique game like that, the way you're not going to file a patent. If it has a lot of like, there's a game called, an old game I played when I was a kid called Mousetrap. It doesn't have physically moving items. Most of the time, you're not going to file a patent on a board game. You're going to write the rules, which is completely free, and you're going to copyright the rules. So most of the time, filing patents on board games is a waste of your money and time. It might not be the case for you, German, but no, that's that's perfectly okay, and you're going to protect that with copywriting the rules, which is by default just putting the copyright on there. Um, okay. Dana Wright wrote, I was a little unsure of this. It was a question earlier today with how many provisional patents can a micro-entity file? And she, she's really on top of it. Dana does, as uh, one of her advisors, she does sales for us. I just called the USPTO and they said a micro-entity can file as many provisional patent applications as they wish. Yeah, I was pretty sure on that, but I had heard something that maybe so if you're a micro-entity. But like I said earlier, there's a worksheet that you can do that you can download for the patent office site that sees if you qualify as a micro-entity. Most of you do, unless you earn a fair amount of money. And then you pay 75 for a provisional. If you earn more than that, you pay 150. But I know a ton of people that are earning more than what the income cap is, but they're still just paying 75. Um, okay, don't touch me. Said thank you, Andrew. Sending much love. Thanks. Minus the hugs. Okay. All right. <laughs> Minus the hugs. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Hey, I don't, I don't deserve the hugs. It's all good. Um, looks like we hit the top of the hour. Uh, Dana, thank you for looking that up. I want to remind you guys all take care, keep inventing. If you want to say thank you to me for sharing a whole hour of my time answering your guys' questions, um, please subscribe down below, like this video, and like all our videos. That would be really helpful. Um, I'd love to get from 50,000 or so subscribers to 80,000. So if you're not subscribed, click on the subscribe button. It doesn't take anything away from you. Nobody spams you or anything like that. It's not how YouTube works, but it helps us out tremendously. So please do that. Say thank you to me. And I'll see you guys next Monday. Take care. Keep inventing. Bye.